Our gospel reading is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> and this is uh, continuing the story early in Jesus' ministry. And we are already seeing that there's some... Um, <laughs> Some people accepting what he has to say and some people in opposition to him. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word which you have given to us. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us as we hear it, God, help us to hear your word, God, help us to understand it, and help us to have hearts that are ready to receive it into our lives, God, that we would be... um, Be those who are ready to live life with you. A life with you uh, through Jesus. A life with you that is transforming first to us and then to the world. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Turning then to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15, uh, we find ourselves in a very different position than those unclean spirits, as we are the very people that he has told to tell about him. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that uh, you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning as we come to our sermon passage, we are looking at Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 29. And we are picking up a story that we have been in for quite some time. This is the story of of what God is doing with his people in this world. This is a story where we see from the very beginning God creating a good world, and yet people then uh, turn away from him and decide to do what is right in their own eyes rather than following what God has said. And we have seen that from that moment that everything kind of unravels and breaks down, but that also in that moment God has made a promise to fix it, to make right what has been made wrong, and to straighten out what has been 
twisted and to repair what has been broken, to redeem what has been lost. This story is the story we've been following along with. And we have seen uh, how God then chooses a man by the name of Abraham, or Abram at the time, changes his name to Abraham and says, it's through your family that this is going to happen. It's through your family that we're going to have this redemption take place. It's through your family that all the nations, all the people on earth are going to be blessed. And then we have followed this family along, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we have seen sometimes them following God and walking with him and uh, learning from him and reflecting him well into this world. But a lot of times, that's not what we've seen, is it? A lot of the time, what we've seen is they are doing what Adam and Eve did, doing what seems right in their own eyes, rather than following the word of God. And we've been following specifically the story of Jacob, uh, Abraham's grandson, for quite a while now. And we remember his story as one who, uh, from early on, he is deceiving the, own member, the members of his own family to the point that his brother wants to murder him and he has to run away. While he's away, a lot of things happen. We'll leave it at that for now. And then he comes back with a, um, a family of his own. And we saw him meet up with Esau, his brother, but not trusting Esau. And he goes off uh, to his own place. And while he's there, what we looked at last week is some of his own sons respond to a wrong that is done to their family with an escalated wrong to the point that he is now not welcome in the land. We say he's not bringing a blessing to these people. And this is where we pick up the story. This is, um, as I say, Genesis 35, verses 1 through 29. Oh, and as we read... There are two words I want you to listen for. There's a lot more going on than just these things, but listen for these. Listen for what gets buried, what or who gets buried, and what or who gets their name changed or gets named. Ready? Here we go. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. 
And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I give I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. And God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons. The sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's servant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father, in, his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he, le- he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Did you hear it? A lot of name changes, right? And a lot of people and things being buried. this is Jacob's homecoming. He finally comes back to his father and to his father's family. And it seems like this is going to be this joyous reunion, right? When he left home many years before, this is what he prayed would happen, is that God would be with him and would bring him back to his father's family someday. And that has happened. God has been with him and has brought him back to his father's family. But Jacob's not the same as he was, is he? When he left home, he was fleeing for his life because of things he had done, because he thought he could do those things. He thought that it was just a matter of what he wanted to do, and he could do whatever he wanted, and he would be able to get away with it. But he wasn't able to. As he's coming back now, He doesn't seem like the kind of man who thinks he can just do whatever, does he? He has the wisdom that comes with age, but an age and the wisdom of experience and that of being self-aware. This joyous homecoming, I don't know if you noticed, is punctuated throughout by death and burial. You notice that? And so here you have Jacob who has gone away and has now has this large family of his own, and yet when he comes home again, we see his mom's nurse get buried. We see his wife, Rachel, get buried. We see his father, Isaac, 
get buried. And I think what we're supposed to see here is the first part of Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That this has continued to punctuate the story, not just Jacob's story, but humanity's story. That as we are reading, as we uh, leave the Garden of Eden, and we start looking at genealogies, and we're saying, and then they lived so many years, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And this is what is happening. But now we see Jacob in the same situation. But with Jacob, he's someone who knows he has blood on his hands. That he is not innocent of everything that has taken place. And so he comes back, not the young man who's so sure of himself and all his abilities. But he comes back older wiser, but also more aware of his failings. This is not something that's only unique to Jacob. If you remember in John chapter 8, it opens with this story of uh, a woman caught in adultery. Everybody's wanting to stone her. And Jesus says, uh, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down to write on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Why is it that the older ones go away first? I suspect it's because, like Jacob, They've got some wear on their tires. They've lived some life. They thought when they were younger, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody to tell me. I've got this. And then they went out and tried it. And now older and wiser, they go, you know what? Maybe I don't got this. (laughs) And they've seen the way. That through their actions, they have caused damage and harm to other people in their lives. And so they've tried to go the other extreme, and they've said, well, I'll just do nothing. And they've seen the way that doing nothing has caused damage and harm in other people's lives. And as they go back and forth, and these are the same two things we were looking at last week, that Jacob and his sons did. Some quick to act, the other not acting at all. And we said, neither one was right. But this is our pattern. And this is where Jacob now is coming home as someone who has struggled with God and with man. As someone who walks physically with a limp, but somebody who has been um, spiritually (laughs) wounded in the way that he needed to be. He has had his pride wounded to where he comes home now and he's seeing not just a joyous reunion and everything is back like it was. This is a lot of times what you see in um, 
TV shows, books, movies, that sort of thing, is you see there's, here's how things are at the beginning, and it's all lovely and wonderful. And then the, uh, something happens, and so the hero has to go out, and they you know, go on some quest, and they solve some problem. And then at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, we're back. Things are back as they once were, only now it's even better for having gone through what we went through. This story is similar, except that when he comes home again, it's not, yay, now everything's like it once was. It's no. No, things are not like they once were. A lot has been broken. And everyone is older. And in some ways, that means they're wiser. But it also means that there are people are dying. And so we have Jacob coming home older and wiser, but not able to celebrate and enjoy life with his family as he most likely had longed for and even looked forward to. We see this theme of um, kind of the wages of sin is death in uh, a couple other ways in this passage. You notice at the beginning when he's, uh, when God tells him to go back to Bethel, where God had met with him when he was fleeing his brother originally, that then the first thing Jacob does is he says to his household and all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves, change clothes, let him go. And so then, verse 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and they buried them under the oak at Shechem. Did you catch that? What's going on in Jacob's family? That he says, hey, we need to get rid of all the foreign gods. You would expect at this point in the story that they'd be like, what are you talking about? We don't have foreign gods. We only serve the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But instead they're like, oh, you mean these. (laughs) And they just have them. Like this is what his family is. This is where they are. They have been uh, not following the one true God, but have been following all kinds of other gods from around. And he says, that needs to get buried. Which is true. This, act, this whole chapter is set up, by the way, I, I think, I see in it a, uh, a chiasm. You know what a chiasm is? If not, you should know what a chiasm is. This is uh, something that happens a lot in, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, where instead of uh, just going on from A, B, C, D, E, event, you know, like that, instead it'll be like event A, B, C, D, and then an event that's like C again, and then like B again, and then like A again. And so there's sort of the central moment, and then everything that goes either direction from that moment kind of reflects each other. It's really cool. There are a lot of these. I think this whole chapter is set up that way, and I'll let you have the fun of finding all those things. But let me point out this one. is um, Point out two. One is the, uh, that Deborah's nurse, or Deborah, who's Rebecca's nurse, 
died and is buried. And you're like, why even bring that up? I think two reasons. One is because uh, it happened and it was probably a big deal to them. And it continues this theme of death punctuating the story. But two is it's the mirror image of when um, Rachel dies and is buried. And so we see both of those happening at these reflecting points in the story. Another one, though, is you see Jacob's family. You see them uh, getting rid of the idols that they were uh, apparently carrying along with them. And the mirror story to that one is that weird thing that happens at the end of this chapter. Um, where in verse 21 and 22, it says, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. What? What in the world is going on here? And this is uh, at a time where everyone's getting older and there is some kind of jockeying for position within the family. And you see the same thing happening now with Jacob's kids that happened when he was a kid as far as trying to secure the, um, the inheritance, the rights of the firstborn, establish yourself as the alpha male, the top dog. Jacob only had to get over Esau. Reuben is the oldest male. And yet he's got all these other brothers who, because they come from different moms, might each think they have a claim um, to the rights of the firstborn. And so, instead of trusting his father, instead of trusting in God, decides to take matters into his own hands. And so I think this is why this reflects the gods that they're supposed to be getting rid of. Because it's it, you see that even though they do get rid of them physically, they seem to still be carrying some of that with them in their hearts. And so once again, we see the same kind of mistakes that Jacob was making early on. We see that continues. And that even though he has this family, that it's a good thing, and it's through this family that God is going to bless the whole world, Yet there's still this problem. There's still uh, this tendency to do things their own way in ways that cause damage and problem. We're going to see that story referred to again. You get to the end of Genesis. We hear the stuff from last week of Simeon and Levi and also this with Reuben as reasons why they are not going to be the ones through whom uh, the promise to bless all nations is fulfilled, that that is actually going to come. Like we're following which line is it? And we're going to see that it's going to come from the line of Judah. We're going to wait for that one, though. In the meantime, I mentioned this whole thing has been kind of a, a chiasm, this reflecting story, all going from one center. And when you see one of those stories, or when you see uh, even a couple of poetic lines written that way, it's typically the middle point that is what gives meaning to all the rest of it. So you should be asking, what's the middle? What is the middle of this whole story we just read? What is it that is supposed to be giving meaning to all the rest of this mess? 
that one, I'm not going to make you fine on your own. This is Genesis uh, 35, verses 11 and 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. This is the center point of this whole story. This is what's giving meaning to the whole thing. And uh, quoted earlier from um, Romans 6, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think this is what this story is communicating to us, or at least pointing us towards. As we look at Jacob's life, we have seen him turn away from the ways of God again and again and again. And we say, well, what does that lead to? And then we read about a lot of broken down family situation, a lot of death. And we go, oh, maybe that's what that leads to. And yet, in the middle of this, in the middle of all of this wages of sin is death life that's going on, we see God coming to Jacob and saying, that's not the end of the story. That's not the whole thing. In fact, he tells him to be fruitful and increase in number, just like he told Adam and Eve back at the beginning. He tells him that a nation and a community of nations are going to come from him, that kings are going to be among his descendants, and that he'll give him and, their, and his descendants this land. Jacob has done about all you could do to disqualify yourself from these kinds of promises applying to you, right? As we have followed his story, he has turned away and away and away from the way of God. And so it's almost like you'd expect the midpoint of this story to be, and then God came to him and said, you know what? Forget it. It's over. We're going to go with Esau after all. But he doesn't. It's right at the point that we are feeling the poignancy of Jacob's failures so much. As he comes back to this moment where you, you have these times of gathering together, we have Thanksgiving coming up. You have these times of coming together where you do kind of reflect on your life, the life of your family, the things that have happened that have been good and not so good, the way in which relationships have been strengthened over the years and the ways in which relationships have fallen apart over the years. And we reflect on these things. And, that, and it's during these holiday times that we feel grief and loss the most poignantly. And I think that's what's going on with Jacob. It's at this moment where he's having this reunion with his family and he's feeling the full weight of his own failure. And he's seeing it played out in the next generation with his kids. And it's at this moment where he's got to be thinking, I have ruined it. I have ruined it. God had said things were going to be good and that it was going to be through my family that the whole earth was going to be blessed. It was all on my shoulders and I ruined it. And it's all hopeless now. And there can be no more 
redemption. There can be no more good that comes from any of this. And it's in this moment where maybe he's tempted toward despair that God comes to him and says, it was never on your shoulders. (laughs) It's always been on my shoulders. And the promise still stands, not because you have been faithful, but because I am faithful. I am God Almighty. (laughs) And I can turn your family mess into the blessing for the whole world. Watch me. As we read the rest of the story, that's exactly what we see. And so this is where I say, I think it points us straight to this, um, what Paul says in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why we have reason to give thanks in all circumstances. Not because all the circumstances are good and not because we have done everything right, but it's because even when we are faced with our own sin and shortcomings and failures most poignantly and just at the point where we are tempted to despair because we think we've ruined everything. That's, here, that's where we're here. The reminder that we have from Jesus himself promising that he is with us always. That he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we also hear Jesus say, when we feel this so heavenly, heavily on us, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know why his yoke is easy and his burden is light? It's because even though we take that upon us, he's the one doing that's pulling the weight. (laughs) And so we yoke ourselves up side by side with him, and we go where he's leading, and we let him... (laughs) Take it all on his shoulders. And in so doing, we can trust that wherever we are and whatever mess we've made thus far in our lives, that's not the end of the story. That God does have plans and he does have ways. And we can trust that if we will stick with him, oh my goodness. He has already promised he will stick with us. And we've, I don't know if you've read, I've flipped to the end of the story. Things turn out really well. And so the question is, do we believe it? Do we trust it? And will we let him do what he has promised he's going to do? Or will we still try to be like Jacob in his younger days? I think, no, 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 I don't need that. I got this. I hope we trust him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day that you have made. And I do thank you for your word which you have given to us. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust you. God, that when we think about what it 
uh, it was like for Jacob to come home. We see that he came home in a way that was heavy. And yet you spoke to him in the midst of that. Breathing new life into everything. And God, as we think about our various um, homecomings and ways in which they may fall short of what we hope for, I would pray that you would remind us of the ultimate homecoming we have uh, to look forward to. For Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for us. So God, we pray that you would help us to trust in you and uh, in your way. When the disciples were confused and they asked Jesus, how do we get to this place? We don't know where, where it is or where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But I pray that you would help us to remember that Jesus is the way. Help us to trust him. Help us to trust his way. God, that we would know the life that you have to offer. God, we thank you that it's not a life that we have to earn, but one that is freely given. We pray that you would help us to accept it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. You taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.